Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves here on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial and streaming on www.3cr.org.au. A podcast of this episode will be available on both 3CR and Brainwaves websites, as well as iTunes. We at Brainwaves would like to acknowledge that this episode was created on the lands of the Kulin Nation, the land of the Wurundjeri people, and we acknowledge them as the traditional owners of land never ceded. We pay respects to their elders past and present and all other Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander people. Hi everyone, my name is Susie and today Kaylin and I will be chatting to Dr Benjamin Habib about his experience of anxiety. Ben is a Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at La Trobe Uni. He is a published scholar and his research interests include climate politics as well as security in North Korea. Ben is involved in permaculture design at Serra's Community Environment Park. However, above all, and so very relevant to us here at Brainwaves, Ben is an activist in issues around mental health. I was interested to get Ben onto our show when I saw that he had suffered an episode of anxiety whilst he was on live national breakfast TV. When I looked into this story, I was incredibly impressed by what he has done since. I think we could all gain from hearing about this. Um, Ben, is there anything else that's important to you that I missed out in that introduction which can give our listeners a little bit more of an idea about you? No, I think that was a very a very generous introduction. Uh, but if anyone's interested, you know, all of my uh, professional musings and activities are on my blog. Uh, so please do okay. check that out. Yeah, that's great. Um, is it okay if, first of all, we discuss that pivotal event that occurred on ABC News Breakfast a few years ago first? For example, why were you there? What happened? How did it feel? And what happened afterwards? Mm, absolutely. This was a, a pivotal event in my life. Uh, and, I, you know, that'll flesh out as we talk about it more. But why was I there? I mean, I... One of my research expertise is on North Korean politics. So I'm in international relations is, is my academic discipline. Uh, and I've done many, many public presentations, done lots of radio uh, talking about North Korea. Uh, I'd even done one previous TV, live TV interview. Uh, so when I got asked to do this, I thought, yeah, sure, I do this all the time. Yeah. Uh, but... Just to, to talk you through the timeline of, of what happened, it was a I was going to be interviewed at 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. So the producer of ABC News Breakfast rang me up on about four o'clock on the Sunday afternoon prior. He said, we'd like to have you on. Sure, no problem. And really from, from that moment onwards, 
the anxiety spiral slowly, slowly started to build up. Yeah. And I was worrying, okay, what am I going to wear? How am I going to get into the city, to the studio at that time of day? So all of these sort of really small practical things were entering my mind, uh, as well as just my, you know, my normal pre-match anxiety about going to do something like that. Uh, I remember watching a basketball game that night. Couldn't tell you who played or who won. My mind was just slowly consumed to the point where I didn't sleep at all because uh, I was just in my head, couldn't find a way to relax through the night. So I get up, I go into the city on the train, uh, go to South Bank to the studios, the ABC studios, get in now about half an hour early. So I've got even more time to sit around in the studio just, mulling through my mind uh, and I had no sleep. So I was really tired. Uh, they take me into the makeup room, do all that. The makeup ladies were lovely. Yeah. Uh, then they led me into the actual studio itself. So I sat there for about five minutes while uh, Virginia Trioli and Michael Rowland were going through other stories. So I'm right next to them. They're doing their thing, but I'm just out of shot. And I'm just feeling so physically wired right now. And I can feel it in my body. It's like this surge of electricity is just pumping through me. And then they introduce my story, uh, do the preamble a bit. Then they cross to me with a question. Virginia and Michael are there looking at me. And I, I can just, I'm losing it. Like, I'm not there. I want to respond. I'm stumbling through the the responses that I wanted to make, again, saying things that I've said many times before uh, in other public forums. And it just wasn't happening. And my, my cognitive function was just going downhill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after they tried to reframe the questions a couple of times, but that just made it worse, <laughs> to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt really under the gun. The, the actual studio itself I found to be a really claustrophobic environment because mm-hmm. uh, you can't see it from the TV screen, but... There's so much sensory stimulation going on in that environment. You know, there's computer screens built into the desk uh, that the presenters use to read information off. There's autoprompters and stuff. There's a bunch of cameras at different angles. There's other screens around. There's lighting. You know, it's a very confined space. I'm, I'm in there. It's a very foreign environment to me, feeling very much under the gun. Uh, and it just, it just didn't happen. Mm. And so my body seized up. It felt like an out-of-body experience. I'm just thinking, I'm, wow. I can't do this. And that's what I said to, to just stop the interviews, that I can't do this. And then they cut away. Uh, and then Virginia just grabbed my arm and said, it's okay. And that was a really kind thing to do in that moment. That sort of helped me get out of that stunned feeling of, you know, felt almost immobilised. Uh, and then one of the other staff walked me out and I kind of left the studio on my own going, what the hell just happened? And feeling really low and bad about myself, you know, tears streaming down the face. So I jumped back on the train. It's peak hour. So there's so many people (laughs) in the public transport system at that time. And I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. Uh, But it's at that moment, sort of going back home on the train, I thought actually, I want to write about this and just write about what happened. And that was my way of trying to reclaim some dignity from that moment while I was feeling really bad. 
and try and make sense of it myself because it, it felt like I'd, I would, had failed in something. That, that, that was my job to be able to provide commentary on issues of the day as, a, as an international relations academic. And I really felt like a failure that I hadn't been able to, to get it done in that moment. Yeah, it would have been an absolutely terrible experience. And um, I was just um, aware that um, cortisol is released when you go into a state of anxiety. And one of the um, effects of that is to reduce your brain function and your memory. Um, and it sounds like that happened to you. Yeah, you just can't. I couldn't say what I wanted to say. I couldn't recall the bits of information that I knew were there. Yeah, it's like unplugging a, a laptop from the internet. You know, yeah. <laughs> all the information is still there, but you don't have access all of a sudden. Wow, yeah, unbelievable experience. And um, have, I just wondered, have you ever had any experience like that before of an anxiety or anything that manifested in such a way or perhaps any other type of um, illness that you'd like to talk about? Well, Susie, this is a really timely question. Because uh, the panic attack, this is one moment in my life and it happened four years ago and so much has happened since then in my journey. You know, in the lead up to that, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. I've had a, a long, lifelong struggle with anxiety and, and periodic bouts of depression. Uh, and it was always, the question for me was always why? Like there was always something in the background that I knew was there and I didn't know what it was. Mm. Uh, so I'd done a lot of counselling. You know, was it trauma? Yeah, I had some trauma, but that wasn't the thing. Was there inherited trauma or family history stuff? Yeah, there was some of that, but that wasn't the major thing. Mm. Uh, and so relatively recently, you know, I've had a, a diagnosis uh, of being on the autism spectrum. So I'm uh, non-intellectually disabled autistic. And understanding now that I'm neurodiverse, is that's the missing link. Okay. That, that's the explainer. And now I understand that panic attack, that's one of many meltdowns, if you like, that I've had over the years. And they've expressed in different ways in different situations. But that puts, it, that puts everything in context for me. Yeah. And this is something I've come to like in the last couple of months. But it's wow. the culmination <laughs> of this long search. And the, the televised panic attack was really a big prompt that I had to go and do some work and yeah, yeah, there's more I needed to do. Otherwise all of these problems would keep recurring and getting worse through my life. And when you got your recent diagnosis, Ben, did it all sort of click into place like that for you? It, like a lot of things in the past seemed to make sense. And Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Or, or, were you that, or did you find yourself shocked? No. Well, it, it came about, we had a, a neurodiversity workshop in my department at work uh, back in February before everything shut down. Uh, so one of my colleagues, uh, Elizabeth Radalski, uh, she's got expertise in this area. So she was leading this workshop uh, for our department colleagues. And the, the idea was that this, we want to give you some basic training so that you can apply some interventions for your students. And so she's talking about some of her ex experiences uh, as an autistic person in the academy. And I'm going, hmm, I really resonate with a lot of the things you're saying. Like, I get this. And then she handed out all of these squishy toys uh, to illustrate stimming. Uh, your 
listeners probably understand what stimming is all about. Yeah. I've never if, you heard wanna, if you want to explain it, yeah, go mm. for it. Stimming. Yeah, yeah, it's the idea that uh, neurodiverse people, everyone, but neurodiverse people in particular, need some kind of tactile, physical outlet to get rid of that nervous energy, for want of a better word, so that we can concentrate. And so she hands out these squishy toys and I'm squeezing it and it completely changed my experience of the meeting and of being in that communal space. I was way more engaged. Uh, I was feeling less anxious in that space. And remember, this is with colleagues I've worked with for a long time. So it's, this is not an unsafe space. Yeah. But uh, I realised that I didn't, in doing that, I didn't have to concentrate on sitting still and all of the mental energy that would be taken up by not doing anything or worrying about how I was breathing or am I moving my leg too much? Am I picking at my fingers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was just so much more present and it, that blew my mind and thought, wow, okay, here's something I need to investigate. So the next five months or so, you know, through lockdown 1.0, uh, just doing some research uh, online, you know, being an academic, I'm lucky enough to have access to academic sources and and literatures and, and have networks of people who I can uh, ask for guidance. So I did a lot of that and reached the stage where I thought, okay, I'll go to my GP and, and ask for a referral to get a proper diagnosis. So that's what I did. Earlier on, we sort of touched on what your life experience generally has anything in your life has contributed to it. And um, I guess I'm thinking family history, that sort of thing, or any, like you said, that there had been issues. We all have issues, don't we? But things that happen in childhood, but yeah, the question itself seems a bit irrelevant now because you've just <laughs> new diagnosis. Yeah. So. Well, well, it isn't, it isn't in a way, because like the family history that really, intrigued me about a link was my maternal grandparents were both uh they're both from ukraine and they were conscripted to germany as forced laborers during the nazi regime in the second world war so they had a very extremely traumatic experience through there uh, and then migrating to australia and i've sort of seen patterns where you know they're really difficult experience i could see how that had rippled through the family you're not just through my mum but you know, through other parts of that family and, and had played a part in the relationship that I had with my mum. And so that, that was a really useful uh, insight to be able to understand that and, and have more empathy, you know, for my mum's life because she had a very difficult uh, upbringing, you know, as a, mm. as a second gen from a migrant family. Uh, and then my grandmother as well. So, you know, I used to go to my grandmother's house once a week uh, and she would tell me stories about that period of her life, like when she grew up. And then when the, when the Soviet forces came and took over their part of Ukraine before the war and, you know, and took their farm. And so she was exposed to Stalin as well as Hitler and then her experiences in Germany. And, but every time she told this story, she'd add another little detail. It was quite amazing to see this story flesh out over time. So I, I knew that would have, have a factor. Yeah, and um, the experiences, as you said, that they have affects them and it affects their children and your children. And um, there's probably 
um, quite a bit of research going on at the moment. Certainly there has been in the past about the, the genetic transference of trauma. Mm. Um, I don't know a lot about it myself, but we're finding uh, when I was young, we didn't know that genes changed in real time in your body, which they do. And um, if you suffer trauma, certainly your genes have changed and it gets passed on um, through the generations. So mm. it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Very interesting. Yeah. But other life experiences, like I grew up in, in Mount Gambia, so that's a, a reasonably conservative regional town in uh, rural South Australia, about halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide. And you know, there's a lot of good things about growing up in the country, but one of the bad things is that, you know, it's socially conservative and there's a hostility to difference. So looking back yeah. and understanding now that as a neurodiverse person, that was a pretty hostile environment for me to grow up in. And, you know, I was exposed to bullying at various stages and I did develop some unhealthy coping strategies and trying to fit in and, yeah. and get through that environment. And... Yeah. You know, you look back and think, as you're living it, so why me? Why are people messing with me? What's wrong with me? And you internalise a lot of negative self-image and negative body image and things like that. So a lot of my 20s was trying to grapple with that. That, that negative self-image stuff was my entry point into this long two-decade journey to get where I am now. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding that um, things that happen as a child come back to haunt you the older you get, but um, things that you thought you'd forgotten or the impact that they may have had, and I'm sure it's the same for all of us. Mm. Um, yeah. You've, yeah, so there's certainly been a lot of things happen in the background before that pivotal event on ABC News Breakfast. Um, so, yeah. Kaylin. It sounds like, yeah, you've learnt a lot from that experience as well, um, not just about yourself but about your family as well, which is really interesting too. And it's funny, as you were talking about stimming, I'm sitting here watching myself and I've got this pen right in front of me and I've taken it apart about four times in the whole, whole time we've been talking. So, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I've got um, my little stimming rocks yeah. <laughs> squeezing away. Yeah, yeah. So... On that, I guess, are there any strategies or therapies that you found uh, useful that you could share with our listeners? Oh, yeah, there's a number of things. I mean, because this has been such a long journey and I didn't really know what I was doing uh, for most of it. So a lot of it was just trying to adapt to the moment and build on new things that I'd learned through the journey. But I guess there's two camps of different things that I'd done. There's the stuff for coping and management sort of through the moment and just to to get through each day. And then there's the more healing stuff. You know, once I'd made big realizations about you know, what had contributed to my life, how do you heal the hurts that have come mm. from that? So, I mean, the coping stuff, it's breath work, meditation, exercise, and organized sport has been good from yeah. time to time. Well, that's cool. Not so much now because I'm a bit older. And <laughs> I'm imagining you going off to sports groups, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny looking back, you know, I was always into basketball, right? That was my main sport. And I realised when I could just go out and play without much organisation, I was really good at it and loved it. But when structure was imposed, like in the context of having a set offence or defence or stuff like that, I really struggled. Mm. Uh, and that that's even though I was pretty good at basketball, I never really made it 
at a representative level because there was so much structure in there. Mm. And now I know why. <laughs> mm. Because that, you know, the neurodiverse me couldn't really handle that level of imposition from the outside. Uh, but then we get to the, the therapy stuff. So done a, a bit of work with acceptance and commitment therapy. One of my uh, favourites. Yeah, yeah. So I was introduced to that about five years ago. My therapist, her name is Caitlin. She worked at Bandura Health. Hmm. Uh, she gave me the uh, Russ Harris book. Yeah, so yeah. I, I read that cover to cover and yeah. did all of the activities. Yeah. You know, that's, there's heaps of useful books out there. Oh, hugely. Uh, but I always made sure if I was going to read one, I'd do all of the work in there. There's no point oh. just reading it. Hmm. I had to do all the activities and you know, and actually work through it and do the work. Mm. Uh, and that sort of helped, helped me to get grounded and take the next step forward uh, for, for wherever I was at in the moment. But it didn't provide any answers. It was like a, it felt like a palliative. Uh, so then, of course, researching mental health. So as an academic, I'm trained to do this. And so that's been really helpful uh, to find the best information available to help me make sense of myself. Uh, and now that's become a, an academic interest too. So I've got another colleague at Latrobe, Tessa Zernsack, and we've just written a, co-authored a book chapter on uh, mental health in academia, which is going to be published soon. Oh, awesome. That, that has been a, you know, as much as a self-healing activity and a self-knowledge activity as an intellectual one. Mm. I'll have uh, to have you I've, back to talk about the book when it's out. Yeah, yeah, and, and have Tessa on too. She's, yeah, that'd be great. She's really great at this stuff. She's very much the, the senior partner in that collaboration. <laughs> uh, but I've done lots of acupuncture and yoga, and through that I learned how to tap into my body as a way of knowing and particularly unlocking traumas from the past. Mm. Uh, done a lot of meditation and, and learned shamanic journeying techniques. And that's helped me to tap into some of the, the symbolism of my subconscious as a way of knowing. So what sort, uh, of, what sort of things do you do with that practice? Well, it's kind of like a guided meditation, okay. but you learn how to do it. I was influenced by an American anthropologist called Michael Hana, who developed this set of techniques called core shamanism, where he, he'd studied a lot of different shamanic cultures around the world. And he tried to combine sort of the core elements into a practice that, Westerners like me could use without kind of delving into cultural appropriation yeah. <laughs> in that territory. Uh, and that involves meditation using a, a drum track. Oh. It's just like a hand drum at, at about 210 beats. I think per I minute. have heard of it before. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it induces a hypnotic state and then you go and, you know, there's a, there's a, a procedure for going and oh. engaging with the subconscious. And that's been really helpful you know, as, a, as an addition to the more intellectual mm. uh, ways of trying to make sense of my life. Yeah, and that, so that's been a goldmine of, of figuring things out. So it's like the whole holistic approach that you've taken there with just combining everything, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, one and of the um, types of therapy that has a lot of evidence for it, but it could well be because they do more research and it's easier to quantify is cognitive behavioural therapy. Mm. Um, had you ever had any experience of that or any other more traditional therapies that you found useful or not useful? Well, I started out with CBT right back when I first sought counselling. So I went 
when I was doing my PhD back in Adelaide at Flinders University, I went to the, the university counselling service there and we started out with CBT. And I found it useful in the moment, but it wasn't giving me the answers that I needed. So it's mm. like I've always known that there was this thing, there was something there that mm. was shaping how I interacted with the world around me. Mm. And, you know, a lot of these uh, therapies, they weren't giving me answers to that. And they couldn't, like that's not what no, they're for. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So to get there, I mean, I've also done some work with entheogenic plant medicines. Uh, oh. So with, uh, yeah, with psilocybin and DMT. Yeah. And they've been amazing, like in a, in a proper ritual setting uh, with uh, psychological support available. Mm. Yeah. We achieve, I achieved more in those sessions than, in a much, much longer period of, of straight up counseling. That's amazing. Uh, but again, you know, I, I came to that space after doing a lot of research mm. uh, on what had been going on in that space. I mean, I hadn't gone near psychedelics as a young person, so it wasn't, I didn't approach that space as a, a party drug thing. Mm. I came to it looking for a healing modality and it was fantastic for that. Mm. Yeah, there seems to be more research and evidence supporting that particular type of drug. Yeah. Yeah, we, we had someone on last year where we talked about the research that was happening in Australia at the moment. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a bit cutting edge and, you know, the way you have to do it at the moment is, you know, is more experimental than mm. and clinical, but, you know, so some of the cultures that have been using these modalities for thousands of years. Uh, a lot of creative outlets through drawing and journaling. And that really helped with the integration. So, you know, as, as you've seen, I'm drawing a lot of insights from a lot of different things. And if I didn't have some way of integrating all that information, it'd just be like they'd be interesting, but ultimately not fruitful for the bigger goal of trying to understand myself. So mm. the journaling in particular is... Uh, well, that's fantastic. what I was going to ask was whether you were tracking, you know, how all these therapies were working for you. Often that's a really good way to do that is through journaling and not just to track how the therapies are working, but also learning about what's happening for your own self in your body and what your needs are. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a good strategy for sure. Yeah, and I've, I've found all these things in a really ad hoc way. Like That's it, the best way to do it, though. <laughs> it, it sounds strategic in how I've mapped it out now, but it really hasn't. It's been something's arisen that I've, a challenge has arisen that I've had to deal with, and I've found a way to deal with it mm. and rinse and repeat, right? Yeah. And the, the panic attack was the most major manifestation of, of something arising that I had to deal with. Mm. Uh, but there's been many more instances before and after that have required that too. So had you ever um, had an experience as intense as that panic attack, like as uh, acute? Yes, but in different contexts. So it feels a bit different. Like I remember when I was, when I was 18, I'd first moved to university, living on campus. And uh, this is a little bit embarrassing to talk about, but... <laughs> It's pertinent. This girl I really liked. And she really liked me. And we're sitting there waiting for something to happen and my body just froze. I'm like, I really want to make a move here, but it just wasn't happening. And it was that same kind of out-of-body experience thing 
the same kind of physical sensations of, of, of overwhelm and that, you know, feeling that your body's shutting down and, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that was really mortifying. That's like, what's wrong with me? Mm, you know, and you don't understand what's going on. It's the feeling is what's wrong with me. I'm a failure. I'm an idiot. Why didn't I do something? And that's a situation that you could probably have played down. So oh, this is normal happens to everyone. This is one of those times when they, that sort of thing happens. So you wouldn't have thought it was too out of the ordinary. It would have been awful, but not too unusual for that to have occurred. Yeah. But yeah. other examples of where I've been forced out of a, a routine that I've, de I've developed and that happens a lot at work. So one of the things I've, realized is that a lot of my anxiety has come from this dissonance of being neurodiverse in neurotypical environments. And that's especially apparent in a big institutional workplace, like a university where I'm at. And it's become more apparent as I've gotten older too. So when I started, you know, when you're a junior academic, you've, you've got a longer leash and you're not subjected to having to participate in the institutional, uh, institutional activities to, you know, committees and, and uh, leadership roles and doing all that kind of thing. But the older I've gotten and the more senior I've got, you know, I've had to take on those responsibilities and I've realized oh, some of these things put me in difficult triggering situations. Mm. Uh, like the, the institutional power structures of a, of a hierarchy like a university that they're, they're full of power relationships. Every relationship is a power relationship. And, you know, for me, I realized I'm not good at navigating power relationship situations like that. Uh, there's been organizational restructures. I'm in the third one that I've been part of directly right now. And the uncertainty around them is highly anxiety inducing and the dehumanization of being treated like a, a unit of production instead of a human being. That's, uh, that's a big thing. The, the, the juggling of increasing and diverse workload demands. So, you know, one of the things I've learned once I've discovered uh, my autism is that I can't do lots of things at the same time. I need to concentrate on one thing at a time. Otherwise I get the overwhelm and sink into that meltdown mode. Mm. Uh, but in an academic workload, you there's lots of competing demands on your time that pull in different directions. Uh, and I found that really challenging. It's challenging for everyone, but it's particularly challenging uh, for neurodiverse people. Uh, and then how I interact with other people in professional settings. So, you know, when I go and do research overseas, I find it really difficult to cold call people and establish new relationships because I just don't know where to start. Yeah. I, yeah, there's a there's something about these social settings that I find particularly difficult. Mm. Uh, just going back to well, for the last time because it must be like torture going back to the ABC. Um, for me, what was a shock was the fact that you're a, a doctor and you're a lecturer and you stand in front of people every day, which I have a have overcome a public speaking phobia, as I told you. So um, it's incomprehensible to me, but um, I have, I've got a neighbor who's a, a senior school teacher, a very um, suave and sophisticated gentleman. Um, and he said it's different standing in front of a class because they're students 
um, than doing public speaking in a different setting. So the setting itself, as you explained, was very triggering. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting um, paradox. Yeah, that's true. But I struggled with public speaking when I started lecturing 15 years ago as well. Like it wasn't something that came easy to me. But through practice and repetition uh, and being prepared, like having detailed notes available there, uh, also understanding that it's okay to stumble and stutter a bit, uh, and so long as you deliver the deliver the audience something of value to them. Yeah, and bearing in mind half the time half the people in the room aren't listening anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, but in a lecture, you've got an hour, or sometimes yeah. more, to be able to speak and pause and make your point. Whereas in TV, you know, I had a couple of minutes. Minutes, to yeah. Very clear and concise. And so when you're doing that, there's an, an editing process that has to take place where you're trying to translate something complex into a soundbite. And that contributes to the anxiety of that moment, in addition to the environment. Do you think that you might, have you ever been back on TV since, or do you think that you might go back on um, in the future? Because you're in a position, particularly with North Korea, which you're a specialist in, where um, you might be called upon. Um, do you think that's something you would avoid or um, with your newfound insight and preparation, maybe give it a go again? Yeah, well, I have. Uh, I did an, another story on ABC News Breakfast last year. Uh, was in Virginia Trioli's last week on the show and she wanted to revisit it. So she contacted me and uh, and we got in touch. Uh, but this time we did a pre-record. She came out to the Latrobe University campus. We went and sat on a bench by one of the lakes there. So we're in a nice outdoor setting. There was no one around. Mm -hmm. So we were really conscious of managing the environment and doing it in a pre-record setting, you know, where it wasn't integral to deliver perfectly straight away yes that's and right so, yeah it was, a, it was a radically different experience but also we were talking about this topic and so i found mm. talking about this it's about my life experience i'm talking from the heart and that's very different to trying to talk about something intellectual where you're plucking thing factoids out of your brain yeah yeah so she's that, also a beautiful human being she probably would have made that experience as good for you as anyone could have so yeah yeah that was, yeah. A, that was a fantastic day it was a, a redemptive day yeah uh, but i have decided though tv is probably not my medium uh, i'm much more comfortable doing radio like this even live radio is okay because no one can see you i can do all the stimming stuff i can have copious notes available i can move around uh, so, you know, I can manage my end of the bargain much better than if I'm in front of a camera doing a live cross. And there's also an emergency switch you can press. So. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's it. And I think for all of us that are on brainwaves, we still get that anxiety. Like I'm even doing this now. Like I think that's everyone feels that at some point or another. It's just how much it's impacting you um and your ability in that space and how that changes but. even before every lecture or presentation i still yeah. got the, got that nervous energy uh, yeah. but sometimes i talk about it and i'm very upfront with my students about my experiences now uh, which has been a positive for them because it's rarely if ever do they have teachers in their life that are real about this stuff and because mm -hmm. so many of them are, are struggling with their own issues uh, it's quite refreshing and affirming.
for students to hear that. Well, that's the thing I was thinking like on campus and that, I mean, I'm sure there's other colleagues who, who you know, I'm, I'm imagining who've gone through what you've gone through or have some similar experiences and might've come up to you and be like, ah, oh, you know, I'm just experiencing oh, that. Hundreds of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that brings up a, another issue that I, I had to work through and that's all of a sudden you're getting all of this attention for this experience and you're being asked for your expertise uh, and I did have a period of guru complex, I think, and I tried to help people where it wasn't warranted. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that was figuring out that was really sobering. Uh, and so now, like when I talk about it, like I'm coming on here, I'm not coming on here as an expert in the traditional sense. I'm a, I'm a fellow traveller sharing what I've learned on my journey. But you're an expert in yourself and that's important yeah. too. <laughs> Yes, no, definitely. Yeah, so, as you said, you, you actually did go viral on Twitter, which is how I somehow or other came across you and got interested in the story. Um, so, and it, bizarre. And it was viral for all the right reasons, actually, because um, I think I heard you say or read somewhere, because you've written and said a lot, um, that it was unexpected because Twitter can be a very hurtful place and... I understand that you got a lot of um, support and love on Twitter. Is that right? Or Yeah, yeah. And I know a lot of other people who've shared stories that has not been their experience. Yes. Uh, so I've been lucky. Uh, but also you know, waiting for that moment. When the trolling comes, you know, I'm not sure how I'll deal with it. But, yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that's part of If you want to play on Twitter, then the toxicity is part of oh, that. Oh, yeah. Hugely so. Mm. Yep. Um, so, Ben, and I really mean to thank you ever so much for coming on to Brainwaves and sharing your personal story. Um, we like to get lived experience on Brainwaves. We do get experts in periodically, but we prefer the lived experience. And I just wondered if any of our listeners um, are interested in finding out more about you or your story, where can they go, please? Yeah, you can find me on my blog drbenjaminhabib.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at, at drbenjaminhabib. Uh, I've got a Facebook page as well, whose link escapes me just at the moment. But if you Google my name, I'm easy to find. And I'll, and I'll include anything in the show notes as well. So I can grab that after, no worries at all. Now that concludes our two-part interview with Dr. Benjamin Habib. I'd like to thank Ben for taking the time to share with us his story and the triumphs that he's been through since that day. I would also like to shout out a big thank you to Susie, who without her this interview would not have been possible. Susie puts in a lot of work behind the scenes helping us to find guests for Brainwaves. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Susie. Now, you can find more of our shows at our website, brainwaves.org.au or on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au or on iTunes. If you've got a story to share, we would love to hear it. Or if you'd like to send us some feedback or suggestions for future shows, please email us at brainwaves at You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.